I remember this one moment when I reached the top of the mountain, there was an eagle and I felt he was watching me the whole time. And right at the time when I passed beside him. There are actually some floodings uh, in the Western Australia, but lucky for pilots, there were actually really nice, decent cumulus cloud days. It wasn't just about the blue flying, the blue thermals. After being crowned champion, the FAI commission that took care of the world class requested some changes in the PW5 design in accordance with the findings from the selection. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and Barbara, the gliding junkie, and our new guest pilot. Hello and welcome back to Soaring the Sky. I'm excited. Barbara's back with us today. Hello, Chuck. I'm really happy that uh, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you. It's been a while. I know you've been quite busy. I think you went from wave camp to the world's helping out. Yeah, it's been a crazy few months. So, so yeah, now, now I'm pleasantly at home. Uh, in the in the calm set of mind, uh, trying to work and uh, settle myself to normal life, no not the nomadic life I, I I've actually experienced for the past few months. So <laughs> it's quite it's quite nice to hear you again, Chuck. It's good to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about Wave Camp, and then we're going to go into the worlds and and what you did down there, and then of course we're going to talk about our guest we have coming up oh yeah well i think the guest is way way more interesting than my experience or my memories but uh, wave camp was quite nice uh it was uh uh really nice weather like windy weather the the one that we are really looking for and um there were some pretty impressive flights even after the wave camp uh so it was a month full of uh really great wave flights my friend uh, achieved a nine, 900-kilometer flight. Oh, uh, yeah, David, uh, David Mach. So that was quite nice. It was a declared flight. And there were, of course, there was like many, many more. <laughs> but uh, the wave camp was really a success, uh, especially because of the weather. Uh, as we were quite, quite concerned at the beginning of the, of the wave camp because uh, wave camp, welcomed us uh, with really warm weather, like t 22 degrees of Celsius. So we were like oh, walking. Nice. Yeah. So we were like, we were, we were, we were outside um, in really weak wind and really high temperatures, like 22 degrees and uh, like walking, <laughs> walking outside in the t-shirt that was surreal, but oh, yeah, well. uh, lucky, 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 lucky us. Uh, the weather got really, really nice afterwards. And we got pretty decent flying, so that was nice. It was it was really amazing. Excellent. Then the weather got even warmer when you went to Australia. Oh, definitely. It was it was quite <laughs> a big it was quite a big uh, temperature shock. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, during during wave flying, you usually usually experience uh, temperatures around minus thirty degrees of Celsius, and then we went to Australia. But lucky us, we had it. We had it uh, quite like, like a really good transfer between summer and winter. 
uh, because the first first two days weren't that warm for us. So we even put some sweatshirt on once we arrived to to narrow mine. It was really windy and uh-huh. not not that not that hot. Uh, and unfortunately, or not unfortunately, I would say that it was really nice that there were some rainy days because narrow mine was all green, and it was really great to see. Uh, the difference, um, as we were uh, in Australia in 2019 uh, during the big fires, the, the big bushfires, it was every everything was dry. There was only dust, and now we actually saw uh, a bit of green Australia. So that was nice. that was yeah. yeah it was Beautiful. it was really nice, and lucky like lu- uh, lucky for all the gr- uh, glider pilots. Because there are actually some floodings uh, in the Western Australia, but lucky for pilots, there were uh, there were actually really nice, decent cumulus cloud days. So it wasn't just about the blue flying, the blue thermals, and yeah, it was it was really great. It was great experience. Well, I know for you this time it wasn't about competing, but what were your responsibilities there at the world? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I was there helping out with the organization. I was involved uh, in the scoring office. I was in charge of the 50 meter class, and uh, Neil Campbell, who was the scoring, sc- uh, the scorer, uh, he was in charge of club class and standard class. So we got it like divided a bit, and um, yeah, then I was doing everything that was necessary during the organization. So um, running with the ropes. Um, helping helping the guys out with um, anything that was uh, necessary to do at the grid. Um, I was in charge of the start lines. So, yeah, I was pretty busy. And at the same time, I was doing my uh, day job for for like daily living. So it was it was really, really busy. <laughs> so interesting. You know, you're on the ground this time. How did that feel? Uh, physically painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, when there was a really, really good day with um, cumulus clouds, like high cumulus clouds, and actually there were a few days when um, uh, the winners of the day were were really fast, like something something, uh, in the 15-meter class, one day was, I think, 151 kilometers per hour uh, on the task, average speed, so that was amazing. Something yeah. similar was in the standard class. So yeah, that was the day when it was physically painful to be on the ground. <laughs> but actually, I knew that I would be flying afterwards, so it was it was a bit easier. But yeah, still. I, I was going to say I know you didn't leave Australia and not get in the air. So <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely, I wouldn't do that never. <laughs> but so yeah, what you was, what'd you do? Sorry. The competition was over. Then you went out and did some flying. What'd you fly? And how was that? Uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Uh, I really must thank, uh, give big thanks to Adam Woolley, my dear friend, who borrowed me his uh, famous Glider 1 Ventus 3. That's ah. probably the most pimped up glider in the world, I would say. And uh, so I was really happy to enjoy uh, flying with this machine, this incredible machine. Uh, so... Uh, I did I did quite quite long distance flights uh, for like I think three or four days. Uh, one declared uh, seven hundred and fifty. That was that was the first one for me, and that nice. was also yeah. And that was, <laughs> thank you. 
And that was actually that was actually also a uh, quite inter- interesting flight as we we flew uh, the same declaration uh, with uh, the same task with uh, our Czech uh, Tomáš Suchanek, also a famous name in the gliding world, and uh, we actually flew uh, part across the the big forest uh, in Australia. It's like a forest that is three hundred x three hundred kilometers wide. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty intense, and we even got uh, to the desert. But as I mentioned, Australia is quite wet, uh, wet uh, this winter. So uh, the desert was all green too. So wow, that was quite interesting. Yeah. That was quite interesting. So yeah, I think um, I think I couldn't be more grateful for what I experienced in Australia. Now I know you love flying the LS8. So share with us a little bit the transition into the other glider and well how'd you feel about it uh i was i was a bit nervous because uh i i've always been a bit of a schleicher pilot because that that there are usually those uh differences between uh, the pilots what they prefer like stiff wing or much more soft wing to to feel or not feel more in the air and uh, so I was, I was a bit nervous about the transition to Schemperth because this Ventus was actually the first Ventus I flew, wow. and um, yeah, so so I, I was a bit nervous about that. It, like you, you're flying the, one of the best gliders in the world, and uh, you might happen not to like it. Yeah, so I was really afraid <laughs> of this feeling, yeah. but. Um, uh, actually, it was I was I was so wrong. Uh, I fell in love with the glider. Um, I felt everything in the air. It felt like my wings. Uh, it felt like my my hands are the wings. So I really felt everything, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. So so um, I I can't really find um, proper words to describe how how much I enjoyed it. It was it was awesome. And Ventus Three is a stunning glider to fly. Now you want one, right? Yeah, yeah. I know that. Uh, <laughs> which, I, I know which glider will be the one that put me into depth. That's so, right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> now I know. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, general, generally speaking, it was great experience, and yeah, I don't, I, I can't find the the proper words to describe it. Just thank, thanks, thanks to all guys in Champhood that are doing great job with uh, with uh, the new gliders. Yeah, absolutely. So our our guest we have coming up today that we're going to hear from here very soon, uh, Marcus. You're familiar with him a little bit. You guys have spoke as he's got an event that he's um, putting on. I, I think it's in uh, November of this year, if I'm correct. Yeah, I think so, because I, I actually received a, an email from Marcus uh, during my stay in Australia. And uh, I think that um, November, maybe October, something something around those two months will be the release date. Like many of us during COVID, he actually got kind of bored and he came up with his own uh, uh, navigation and XC Nav, I believe it's called. I hope I'm getting that right, Marcus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think uh, it's XXNF, uh, as Marcus said. Well, we will definitely hear more about that. But yeah, it's yeah, great absolutely. to hear. It's definitely good to hear that uh, the COVID boredom actually brought something good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. 
Barbara, it's been great catching up with you. It's good to have you back on. Um, look forward to you. Yeah, I'm really glad you. that you're having me again. And I'm really looking forward to hear what Marcus will tell us about the new XCNF. Yeah. And also the Soaring Master will be here later with a brand new segment. Yeah, excited about it. Marcus, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. Hi, hi, Chuck. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here. I'm uh, really happy about this um, to be on your show. We've been trying to match our schedules and as life, you know, hands you things sometimes. It, we were kind of back and forth, but yeah, we finally, finally got this thing going. So super excited to hear your story and where you're flying. So I'm going to let you have the microphone. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, first, I think I'm going to introduce myself. Marcus is my name. I'm from Germany. Um, yeah, flying since I was like 14 years old. And I think since I could think, I was uh, fascinated by uh, flying. I had my first flight when I was like, uh, I still can remember. I think I was like five or six years old in a small Cessna. And since then, I was always fascinated by flying. I started model flying. And uh, when I was like 12 years old, I had the chance to uh, go gliding at a glider airfield near the Alps where my grandmother was living. And fortunately, this uh, glider club where I was flying as a passenger, they had a good friendship with another glider club, which was uh, uh, located more or less in the vicinity of my hometown. So, and I was so amazed uh, by this glider flight. I know they originally, they just planned a traffic pattern and we we had the luck to catch some thermals in the traffic pattern. And uh, I can remember if, uh, I can remember when the pilot asked me if I would like to fly maybe 10, 15 minutes longer and I agreed, and finally we did like two and a half, two and a half hours in an old Bergfeige. And um, yeah, my mother was down down on the ground waiting for me. Um, and finally, I think this was the starting point of my flying career. And the next season, I convinced my mother to go to the uh, to the partner flying club. And then I finally uh, had the chance my yeah, to get uh, started and uh, started glider flying with uh, in the age of 14. Yeah, then everything started. What were you flying and at the age of 14? I, I also started uh, at the Bergfeige, at the Mu13 Bergfeige, and then uh, the next glider was a K8, K6, and... Uh, after the license, I were allowed to fly on the uh, Astia and the Cirrus. So they had not the, the most fancy aircraft park, the most fancy glider park. But that was uh, in uh, March. I started March uh, 89, I guess. Yeah, March 89. Oh. And so in the 90s, uh, this story continued. So I was lately, I figured out that I was not the best, the best in school. I always dreamt about dreamt about flying and doing an aviation career. So I finally had the chance to pass the Lufthansa initial test. And in the age of uh, 19, I was able to join the Lufthansa pilots training and finally ended up flying for Lufthansa. 
And with the initialization of the Lufthansa flight training, I moved to Bremen, which is uh, quite on the other end of Germany. So I'm living in Bremen since then, uh, which is in the northern part. And um, yeah, I found a club here, uh, flew there a few years, but finally I struggled with uh, the flying on the weekends because in this club they were mostly flying at the weekends and with an unregular shop base like I have in the aviation industries like as an airline pilot you only have maybe one week and off a month so um, yeah I finally quit in this club and I for three four years I didn't fly at all till my best friend and me we bought an ASW 24e with an engine and we parked in we parked this uh, ASW 24 in his parking lot and uh, went then flying from different airfields. So whenever we had time or whenever I liked, I just grabbed the aircraft and uh, went flying. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Yeah, and uh, then finally I found my wife and uh, we got kids. So this made uh, gliding a little bit harder. Now and then I was flying with the ASW24E, but finally we sold it, not at least because uh, the engine, the Rotax engine, there are no spare parts available for this. And I know if we're going to crash the engine or if we're going to uh, rip the engine, going to be pretty expensive and uh, yeah. And we just have a glider with a non-working engine. So we finally sold it for a good price. And then I was like two or three years without glider till I finally decided to buy my uh, now uh, my glider, my actual glider, which is an SCT-55. Ah, okay. When COVID started, then I had no chance to fly it because all the clubs were closed down here. Uh, yeah. I wanted to join a new club here and everything was closed down. And uh, then I started with XENOUGH, um, inventing my my own glide computer during you know, the re-instrumentation of my own glider. And since then, um, I have sparely time, <laughs> sparely time to fly. Yeah, being honest. So during COVID, you came up with your own flight computer. Yeah, actually, it was like I was looking for a solution, and there were a few solutions, but whether they didn't work out really well. Or they were uh, too expensive for my case. Um, refitting a second-hand glider with a system which is uh, 10, 10K or more was uh, not affordable for me. So, wow. yeah, as I always was playing and flying with XTSOR and I was pretty familiar with XTSOR, I started uh, working on a solution to uh, put XTSOR uh, in my glider on an Android uh, on an Android system, and so I finally came up 
designing my own system. And right now I have a system based on Android with a transflective screen, which is uh, not very power hungry. So we only use below 300 milliamps on the full brightness, which is ultra sunlight readable. And I have serial connections, so you can connect any variometer or farm, whatever to your system. How it came to, to Interglide was like with the XENOUGH, I was trying to uh, sell my system. I got my own internet shop. I got my own internet page. And um, I tried to go to the Aero in Friedrichshafen to sell my system. But finally, what happened is that they were much too expensive for a small startup like mine. And at this year, last year, 23, there were no, nearly no other glider manufacturer or from the, uh, from the gliding scene. So that would not have paid out for me. So yeah. I was looking around where and how I can promote my system, how I can sell my system. There was the German gliding day, the Deutsche Segelflieger Tag, and it was in Koblenz, which is in the northwestern part of Germany. And this was the first uh, gliding, the, the first gliding days after the COVID crisis. There have been so many people, and I figured out that it is essential for for the people in our sports, especially because you cannot go to a shop like if you if you buy a fishing route or whatever, you could go to a shop, you you see it, you can try it, uh, but not so in gliding. So the people were really keen on to get their hands on the gliding stuff, to to sit in a glider, to check out the navigation systems before they buy them. And so that time I started thinking about why not doing an own glider fair, a glider exhibition. So I started getting, I started researching in the internet. I got more than 100 manufacturers out of the gliding sector and I called everybody. I called them and said, hey, my idea is we do, we do our own fair. We do our own glider exhibition. So uh, what do you think about this? And the feedback was so amazing because everybody said, yeah, we're talking about this since 10 years and nobody ever did it. And finally, I have to say it was dumb enough to do it because at this time you don't know what, what this really means. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I just started and I got really good feedback. I started building my own web page and a preliminary web page and wrote to the manufacturers, called them, and they they wrote back and they they stated their interest. And so I got more than one hundred twenty manufacturers from the gliding sector uh, from all over the world. Really, I've got uh, American manufacturers. I've got uh, from all over Europe. I got um, all the glider manufacturers, I got parachute manufacturers, I got navigation system manufacturers, whatever wow. you can think of. And this is uh, basically strictly related to the gliding sector or to, let's say to the thermal sector because I want to get the paragliders as well. Yeah, right. So everybody who's flying without engine or is joining the, the natural power uh, to gain height uh, is welcome on this fair. When's the first event? Uh, it will be the first, will be this year, 24, and the 9th and 10th of November. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay. And we, yeah, we finally, I, I was talking, I was looking for a good place 
And I finally ended up in Karlsruhe, which is basically located in the in the heart of Europe with good connection via train, via highway. So I want to build a platform, a gliding platform, which is pulling the attention of yeah of the whole European gliding scene. So and this is pretty much in the heart of Europe, good to reach from everywhere. We are in good contact with the magazines, with the French and the Italian gliding magazine, with the English gliding magazine. And so I, I think we're going to pull a lot of attention and we can pull a lot of people here. Absolutely. I think this is what was missing in the gliding scene. And we now have a really, really good chance to build up a new platform, which is different from from the platforms we know. And I'm working on pulling attention from uh, people outside outside the gliding scene. I mean, in Ger- I don't know how it is in, in the United States, but it, here in Germany, we have a lot of problems about new glider pilots. So oh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the number of pilots, the number of glider enthusiasts are, are shrinking since years. And I think this is because... In the last in the last 10, 15, 20 years, the way of living changed dramatically. Uh, also for the young people. So, like yeah. twenty years ago, or, or let's say thirty years ago, people they had a job, they stayed in the job. They're more or less in Europe or in Germany. They they stayed at the hometown or they stayed in the region, and yeah. they had enough time. And now with the internet. The jobs changed, so they move. They move everywhere. They got every two years, three years, they got a new job. So it's not like it is like it was like twenty years ago, where you go there on Saturday morning and leave on Sunday night and don't do anything else than gliding. And if you're not there at eight o'clock, you cannot fly. So yep. um, the young people, also the behavior of the young people, changed. So and this is getting a problem for the clubs in Germany and for the gliding sports. And I think we have to reinvent gliding in clubs totally. And um, I mean, if you if you take a look at, at Stefan Langer, who is, I think he's got like, I looked up today, like 240,000 followers on Instagram or YouTube. Right. Those are all, a lot of young people, a lot of young people, they are not involved with gliding. They are fascinated by what he's doing, what he's showing, but actually... It seems maybe it seems too far away for them, but we want to get gliding close to these people and show the sports and show what it really is. Well, I think you have a good good start and a good and a great location as far as right there in Europe that a lot of people can get to. So it's going to be exciting to watch this and see how it turns out. But congratulations yeah, yeah. to you for building that. That's that's pretty amazing. All right, Marcus. You know I'm going to try to grab some stories from you in the air because that's what we love to hear here at Soaring the Sky, but um, when you go back in your mind and you think about some flights here, is there anything that sticks out that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think one flight I'm, I'm still dreaming of because on one side it was really scary, but on the other side it was like really fascinating. Is I used to fly a few years. I went every year to the French Alps. This day was supposed to supposed to be a wave day and I really struggled a long time to get in the wave and um, uh, finally I ended up pretty low in the south of a mountain 
which was actually I was in the Lee and I tried to fight out the Lee like more than, yeah, like more than one and a half hours. I was always in a height band of like 200 meters, like 600 feet up and down, up and down. I was in the rotor and I really fought like one and a half hours. I was literally, I was, I was crying because there was no really outlanding side there. I was not able to get oh, wow. back to Gap. And the the only reachable airport was actually with the northerly winds was not flyable, was not landable. So everybody was warning about don't go there with this winds, don't go there. Finally, I I fought for one and a half hours. I was in the plane. I was crying. I was sweating. And finally, I managed. I managed uh, getting out of this and catch the wave. And I remember this one moment when I reached the top of the mountain and there was an there was an eagle and I felt he was watching me the whole time and right at the time when I passed passed beside him he launched as well and like we didn't fly along together but right at this time he was watching me all the time and then finally when I reached the top he was launching flying with me a few meters at this moment I really I thought he was sweating with me, like he was watching me all the time. I don't know right. how long he was been sitting there, but at this moment, really the whole tension fall off me and I was so delighted. And this is, uh, this is a moment I, I, I still can remember. Yeah, that was really, that was a majestic moment, yeah. I'm missing flying in the French Alps. I haven't been there for the last eight years. Yeah, absolutely beautiful, I'm sure. But can be scary when when you're in that situation and and you don't know if you're going to be able to uh, get that lift. Yeah, yeah. Right now here in the northern part of Germany, it's mostly flatlands. In the eastern part, we have a an area which is which has pretty sandy grounds, so you can get good thermals. But it definitely is something different than flying in the mountains, flying in the Alps. How far are the Alps from you then, right now, where you're flying? So, if I drive down by car, it would be at least uh, seven seven hours, yeah, about oh, wow. seven to eight hours. Yeah, it's about seven hundred fifty k. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have not not far from my side. We have we call it Mittelgebirge, which is which is a, some mountains which are pretty pretty low. Uh, the Wiengebirge. So you can do wave flying. It starts in about November December okay. when we have strong northwest uh, northwesterly winds. You can do wave soaring, but it still is not flying in the Alps. It's it's uh, totally different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about how about some lightning round? Okay, go ahead. Okay, if you could only pick just one, what glider port or region would be at the tippy top of your bucket list of places to go soaring, and why would that be? Um, Omerima. I um, always nice. I'd always dreamed about Omerima. Um, I've seen videos, I've seen pictures, and this must be such an amazing place to fly from. And, um, yeah, I think this is going to be the top of my bucket list. Yeah, definitely. Nice. So what's harder for lower hour pilots to master getting into and staying in wave, or do you think staying in convergence lines for long distances? I think staying convergent lines. I think also experienced pilots um, sometimes struggle to find the right line. Yeah. 
Now, I know you're an airline pilot, but what's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider and where was it? Um, actually, it was, um, I think it was at this time I told you the story um, and it was about 18,000 feet. Oh, wow. Yeah. When the glider, yeah. Then my oxygen reached the limit. Wow. P-tube, P-bag, diaper, or pee out the window? P-bag. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. If, the, the, if you could... Go ahead. No, no, it's like, um, I remember, like, um, better test your P-bag on the ground for holes before you try them out. <laughs> yeah, right, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you could fly your glider at only one bank angle other than level, what would that be? Circling, thumb circling about 50 degrees, 45, 50 okay. degrees. Yeah, yeah. So what's your favorite type of lift? Would it be thermal, wave, ridge, or conversions? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, hard, that's a hard question. Um, actually, I think most time I did thermal flying, but... Yeah, I think I can do thermaling, uh, the best thermaling. But uh, I mean, if you go, if you do a final glide of 150 or 180 kilometers along the ridge, um, that's fine as well. But I think I'm, I can do thermaling best. Yeah. Okay. I would like to take a moment and welcome a new sponsor to the podcast. We are grateful to have XCNav, the smart solution. XCNav, the smart Android-based panel-mounted flight computer with the latest sunlight-readable transflective screen technology. Thanks to its operating system and touchscreen, it is capable to run different navigation apps such as XCSoar, Top Hat, LK8000, CU Navigator, and many more. A Bluetooth stick remote control that is usable with any Android phone completing the package. XCNav is also now shipping overseas. Check them out at xcnav.de or hit the link in the show notes. So what's the strangest or most spectacular thing you've ever seen? And now I'm going to say in, in any cockpit, because being an airline pilot, I know you've seen some crazy stuff. So we won't judge you here. I was for like 10, 12 years, I was flying um, pretty, pretty big um, para opera, operation um, per, uh, plane, which was in um, short Skyrim. This was besides my main job as an airline pilot. And like I flew the military. And if you see those um, tough military guys, I had one co-pilot who, who was some general on the co-pilot seat. And when we finally started our descent, I saw this uh, really tough guy crying besides me. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't know, he, he thought we we're going to crash. Because if you if you know paradrop operations, you'll be on the ground before the last parachute jumper is on the ground. So the descent right. is pretty pretty yeah. aggressive and steep. And this uh, yeah, that makes me kind of uh, still makes me kind of laugh seeing this uh, tough guy <laughs> in his general uniform cry. <laughs> well, we all have our limits, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if if you had to pick one thing for lower our uh, glider pilots trying to learn how to thermal more efficiently and, and effectively, what would your advice be to them? 
So the last years, I haven't been flying that much. And I really figured out that, let's say, simulating on the computer and trying to to build tactics and trying to fly um, with Condor or with the uh, FS Flight Simulator, uh, I think helps me getting or helps me keeping my, uh, how do you say in English, helps me keeping current. Yeah, and right. um, I think this could help, especially in the winter, in the winter time when there's not, not, not much flying, you can train situations. And I think you can also try different tactics in thermaling and try to find out, I try to find out how to better center thermal. I feel that Condor, right now I'm flying pretty much Condor, is really good in, um, yeah, in building in building thermals, like virtually building thermals. So it feels, it pretty much feels like a real thermal. Like if I would do the same thing in the in the real airplane, I think I would end up the same. So yeah, um, it's a pretty good thermal mo model or environmental model they do have. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, or local motel? RV. Definitely. Yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I like being, I like being on an airfield. If I, if I'll be there, I want to stay at the airfield. Um, yeah, I want to yeah. socialize with the other glider pilots. So, um, yeah, I definitely would stay i do have an rv i do have a little camper so always i stay in my camper what's your favorite flight computer <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> oh, let me think about it um have you heard about x enough this is a small startup from germany they're doing really good stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you had to rank the various weather products available to cross-country pilots which one which you rank is the best? Yeah, uh, right now, definitely SkySide. Um, yeah, yeah. Not at least because of the uh, SkySide integration in weak light. This is for me the perfect combination. Yeah, good stuff. I agree. So you're at the gas station and someone comes up to you and asks what is in the trailer. Would you say a mini drag racing car? Uh, <laughs> B, a submarine? or see a large model rocket? Or maybe you just tell them that it's a glider. Um, yeah, it's funny because I had a glider which which had a painted an, uh, crocodile on it. Uh, nice. With, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a tournament crocodile. Uh, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I would stay with this. Okay, so you, you've had a, a, a long a long day of cross-country soaring in summertime. And what's the first thing you would do? Take a shower, drink a beer, or look at your flight trace and start making notes on what you did wrong? Um, from my experience, first pee, and then have a drink and a chat with the colleagues. And then, uh, yeah, finally reviewing the day. And uh, yeah, just stay, stay at the airfield. Oh, sounds like a plan. Yeah. So, Marcus, 
I want you to, uh, if you can give me some links here that, that the listeners can link to and keep an eye on what you have coming up here. And of course that event you have coming up and we'll put it in the show notes and we okay, can perfect. follow that. Yeah. It's uh, first of all, it would be yeah, uh, the interglide www.interglide.de. All right. I'll put that in there. And www. Yeah. In uh, XC, XCNAF. De. All right. Some exciting stuff. Thank you for your hard work on that. It's it's all these things in combination to keep the soaring community going and to get new interest. Because like you were saying earlier, we we definitely have a problem with that there, of course, in Germany. And, and of course, here in the United States, we also have the same problem, keeping people interested or getting people interested in soaring. So yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. do our part here. Marcus, thanks for sharing your story today. I appreciate you taking your time. We finally got this thing going, and it's it's been fun. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I'm I'm so happy to to do this, and I hope that was interesting for you as well. I mean, Absolutely, if I if I listen yeah. to your to your podcast, and there are people who really have like I yesterday I was listening to the story of. Uh, Bruno Vassell and his teammate flying this, this, um, oh, the so- soaring safari. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. Amazing with a winch. What a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. Uh, Bruno appreciate hearing that. Yeah. Uh, how do you pronounce him? Bashi? Bruno Vassell. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 I would pronounce him the same way. Yeah. Brassel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about a meeting of all the gliding influences so that people can meet their influences. So I, I try to get some, you know, in every country, I try to get those local influences as an ambassador for Interglide. So yeah, I'm yeah. pulling on Stefan Langer for Germany and Juliet Serra. Okay. And nice. uh, for the Czech Republic, I'm now in contact with uh, Barbara. I don't know. I, I, ah, Barbara. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, she's, she's um, great. I need to find someone for France. I have someone for Italy. I've got um for Italy I've got um Andrea Andrea Venturini. He's running the gliding and soaring uh Facebook group. Ah, okay, like nice. Okay. 15,000 yeah. followers or something like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a nice guy. So I got Klaus Ullmann. He's uh, he's chairman for my uh, for for the Interglide. Oh wow, nice! It's going to be huge. That's awesome, Marcus. You have a good night. We're going to keep an eye on things, and uh, we wish you the best. And we'll do Thank whatever you. we can here at Soaring the Sky to help out. Yeah, you anytime welcome. If you maybe you you're going to travel around, and maybe in November you're going to be around. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Let me right. know. Right. Might have to show my face, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack, thanks, thanks a lot for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sorry Master here. As we saw in the previous podcast episode, the global competition for an Olympic glider project ended in '92 with the selection of the Polish project PW5 as Olympic sailplane. By then, the chance to have Surin in the Barcelona 92 
Olympic Games edition was gone. But there was still a chance to have it in Atlanta 96. It's always good to have in mind that all the entrants from the 1992 uh, World Sailplane Selection fell short of these specifications. And the closest to, to meet them was the PW5. After being crowned champion, the FAI commission that took care of the world class requested some changes in the PW5 design in accordance with the findings from the selection. Those changes were uh, carried out by the design team from the Warsaw Polytechnic University and they consisted on first provision for a tail skid with a shock absorber or a tail wheel. Second, reducing the number of handles of the cockpit jetson mechanism from three to two. Uh, repositioning the cable disconnection handle on the panel. Replacement of the wheel brake by a more effective one. Improvement of the rear cockpit uh, visibility. Everyone who knows or has already flown a PW5 can notice that uh, extended rear part of the uh, plexiglass by the rear that was the result of this of this uh, uh, change request the six was uh, the provision of uh, for, for a fairing around the main wheel to prevent winch cable entanglement seventh the um, automatic controls connection design and the eight uh, request was the provision for amateur construction form of kits. The serial production of what would become the Olympic glider with that target price of $15,000 and the possibility of being produced at home in the form of kits, however, began in a very strange way in its home country, Poland. Poland in 1993 was a country experiencing uh, the end of the Soviet bloc and changes of such a magnitude that it's even hard to imagine. Uh, all administrative spheres uh, were being reorganized from the police to public services, bureaucracy, the banking system, uh, legislation, and so on. Similarly, the Polish aeronautical industry underwent enormous changes. In Poland, all aircraft production was planned by the Polish government uh, to meet both internal demands and Moscow orders. Uh, the Polish aeronautical industry was organized by PZL, which is the acronym for a state aviation company. The PZL had sub-factories which took care of specific types of aircraft production. Uh, those sub-factories included PZL Milek, uh, producer of uh, fighters like uh, MiG-15 and MiG-17, and specialized aircraft like the agricultural dromader for the Soviet bloc, uh, another company was PZL Swidnik, which uh, was, uh, took care of helicopter production for the entire block. And there was also PZL Bialsko, or SCD uh, Glider Factory, where famous sailplanes like the SCD-50 Pukach, the SCD-48 Yanter, the 
SD51 Junior and other renowned gliders were designed and uh, produced since the 50s for both the Soviet bloc and exports. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union, orders that were almost uh, automatic uh, simply ceased. Among those companies, Pizialbialsko, uh, the sailplane manufacturer, SCD, uh, was a world-famous sailplane factory with 60 years of experience, almost 300 specialized technicians in composites and glider production, uh, faced serious difficulties by 1993. They had a revolutionary glider under development, the SD-56 Diana, with the potential, potential of becoming a hit. But the company was facing hardships that made it hard for them to even afford carbon fiber purchases or even the electricity. Uh, the factory needed to resume mass production as fast as possible. And the PW5 production was the hope. Uh, however, by government decision, the PW5 would be produced by a helicopter company. The PZL Swidnik uh, factory manufactured 250 military helicopters per year for the various forces of the Soviet bloc. And this production fell to only 20 per year after the end of the uh, Soviet Union. And half of their uh, 12,000 employees had been laid off. In order to meet the uh, government decision, uh, PZL Swidnik sent 50 employees for training to PZL Bialsko uh, for them to uh, get acquainted with the production characteristics of sailplanes and the uh, techniques employed, and that's how the production of the Olympic sailplane, the PW5, began. Such a decision to produce it in a helicopter factory can only be explained by the political environment of the Polish transition, with sectors that once had significant political or military influence still playing their final cards. Uh, Mass-producing a sailplane requ requires an experienced team and the first batches of PW5s received uh, significant quality criticism from their first owners. The price set for the project also began to be criticized by the market. Uh, the PW5, which has a glide ratio of 1 to 32, around there, uh, costs uh, $15,000 by the time. Whereas uh, used Yanter standard, which has a glide ratio of 1 to 38, uh, costs around $17,000 in the aftermarket. Uh, this fact discouraged many potential PW5 buyers who quite rightly preferred to spend almost the same amount of money on a used glider with a better performance instead of a new one with inferior performance. Another factor contributing to the rejection of the project was the difficulty of producing the glider at home in kit form. Since the early days of gliding, gliders like uh, the Gruno Baby were massively produced uh, uh, by amateurs or clubs uh, because everyone with the plans in hand 
could easily cut the specified pieces of wood and manufacture their own sailplane a very cheap way. Uh, the plans for the Olympic sailplane were supposed to be made available to anyone interested in building uh, their own unit. Of course, the, the plans had to be uh, uh, purchased. But uh, the decision to use fiberglass made home production difficult uh, due to the need of more expens expensive materials, knowledge, and more specific tools. Uh, so very few PW5s were home built. So without being able to lower the acquisition costs, uh, the entire community was stuck with a single manufacturer for, for that design. If selected factories in each continent had been selected to mass produce the sailplane, creating region, regional centers uh, for PW5 production, for example, one factory in South America for sales in that region, one in the US, another one in Europe, this could have uh, scaled the production and lowered the overall costs. But it wasn't so. The production started at PZL Swidnik with a much lower production rate and sale numbers than expected. Without the Olympics to showcase the single class idea, the FAI decided to schedule the single class competition uh, in the World Air Games of 1997 in Turkey. Uh, the first uh, world championship of the Olympic class and also the first uh, single type official world championship competition since the 30s. What would happen next? Well, the last part of the story I'm going to tell you in our next episode. If you guys want to see the sailplane pictures mentioned in the previous episode and this one, uh, I've, I've selected some cool uh, pictures uh, from the selection process. Uh, and I'm going to post them in my Instagram account, at Master. By the way, for more tips and advice, follow me on Instagram, at Master, or check my website, soaringmaster.com. We are going to open the 2024 Soaring Master course edition, so stay tuned. See you guys in the next one. Bye. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.